If you would this morning, let's go back to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. We've seen that in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is writing to these churches at Galatia. He's very passionate, so passionate, in fact, that he does not even take the time to really give the church a salutation. He did for every single other epistle that he wrote, but not this one. And the reason is because Judaizers, these supposed Jewish converts to Christianity, had come in and they were perverting the gospel of grace. They were adding works to grace. Um, and so Paul is writing this to combat that false gospel. I mean, he just gets right into it. We've seen that uh, Galatians 5 and verse 1 is actually the theme verse. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And, and so... As we continue into chapter 2 today, I, I kind of want to get you in the mindset here. Sometimes we lose things um, from our Western mindset. But I want you to understand that the early church was essentially a Jewish church. And what I mean by that is Pentecost started in Jerusalem. And Pentecost is essentially the birth of the church as we know it. And it started with the Jews and it worked its way out to the Gentiles. So these Jews are getting saved. They're coming to Christ. But they have a completely different background than the Gentiles. And in many ways, the Jews really had to unlearn a lot more than the Gentiles did. And so as the, as the Jews are being saved, they're coming to Christ. But then as the gospel went out to the Gentiles, now the Gentiles are being saved. They're coming into the church and now there's a little bit of tension, a little bit of confusion, because if, if you remember, the Jews really kind of looked down on the Gentiles. The Jews had the law, they had the prophets, they had the temple, they had the priests, they had all that. And now here come the Gentiles. Is there no difference between Jew and Gentile now? Are we to make no distinction? So there's this tension. They're talking about these things. And the solution that these false Judaizers came up with is, sure, Gentiles can be saved. And they can be saved through Christ, but they've got to become a Jew first. In fact, they were taking it so far that even grown men, these Gentile converts, were commanded to be circumcised or they could not be saved. Uh, you'll find that in Acts chapter 15 specifically. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Uh, but all of this goes squarely against the gospel of grace, which is salvation simply by grace through faith. Uh, on behalf of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for sin. That's it. Religion says do. Christ says done. And if you understand the Jewish mindset, they, they were so stuck in the mindset of do that sometimes it was hard for them to just completely flip that switch and go to done. They, they battle with that. And honestly, to some degree, I would say that's the battle with all of us because a work salvation is certainly not limited to the Jews. In fact, if you boil down every religion, whatever thousands they claim are out there, some 4,000 or whatever religions in the world, you can really boil them down to two categories. That's a grace-based salvation and a works-based. <laughs> i got news for you. 3,999 of them are works-based. There's only one that's by grace through faith. Isn't it just the pride of the human heart that says that I 
not only have to do something, but I can do something. I can do. I can earn the favor of God. I can be pleasing to God. God will look down upon my life and go, wow, he's so good I'll have no choice but to let him into my kingdom. That's so opposite of the gospel of grace. And Christianity is the only faith that starts with the premise that man is wicked before a holy God. Every other religion says that man is at least partially good and through that goodness we can be good enough to earn our salvation before God. Even in this uh, letter to the Galatians, Paul begins the first five verses by defending the true gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Verses 6 through 9 in there in chapter 1, Paul is lecturing the Galatian believers about being saved by grace and then being fooled by these Judaizers about being made right by the law. And last week, we looked at the last 14 verses of chapter 1 where Paul Uh, spent that entire time defending his apostleship. And we saw the fact the only reason that Paul would have to defend his apostleship, especially to the degree that he did, was if these Judaizers um, had said, basically, don't listen to Paul. He's not even a real apostle. He didn't walk with the other 12. He didn't walk with Jesus. He don't even listen to him. And as I said before, every cult, before they can come in and draw any converts, they have to destroy the foundations. They have to destroy... Uh, somebody's doubt in the Word of God. They have to destroy the standards that are. And that's how they come in. And so that's true today. Uh, We look specifically at the issue of authority and who is our authority? Who can we trust? Well, we can trust the Scriptures. We can trust the writings of the apostles. There are no more apostles today. Um, We also looked at a little bit of church polity about the pastor uh, and, and deacon and the offices there. I won't go too much into that. I'm sure we'll do a study through Timothy one of these days, and it deals uh, more in depth with that. But getting to our text this morning, in chapter 2, Paul is continuing to defend his apostleship. But in chapter 2, he begins to shift to the validity of the message that he is preaching, the gospel that he's preaching. And that is in contrast with the message of these Judaizers. And with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our text this morning. We'll read 10 verses, uh, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul says, Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Now, he's talking about um, when he was converted in Acts chapter 9. Then he had a three-year period of training in the Arabian desert, and then after that, and that's where he picks up. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepted no man's persons. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, the, the uncircumcision is speaking of Gentiles, non-Jews. It says, was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, 
the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace of God was given unto me, they gave to me uh, and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go into the heathen and that they under the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for this day and this beautiful weather. We just come to you in Jesus' name. God, I just pray that you would forgive me where I failed you. Lord, forgive us where we failed you in our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes. <coughs> Lord, I pray that you would just uh, be magnified, God, that Christ would be glorified. And Father, that you would enter me as sin and self and that you would just do a work in our hearts, Lord, whatever that means, whatever we need. I pray that you reveal it. Uh, God, we give this day to you and give this message to you. Fill me your Holy Spirit, God, in Christ's name I pray you sing. Amen. I want to preach on the thought of testing the gospel. Testing or trying, proving the gospel is what I mean by that. Now, Paul begins here to compare and contrast his gospel with the gospel of these false teachers, all while still kind of on this theme of defending his apostleship. But he doesn't start by just blasting the fallacies of their gospel. He begins by testing and proving his own message. And what really disturbs me a lot of times, and this is true not only of false gospels, but it's also true of false teachings even within the church and among true believers. You know, if you can't biblically, logically, reasonably defend your position, and all you can do is cast stones at somebody else's position, you need to reevaluate some things there. It doesn't necessarily mean that your position is wrong, but if you can't even defend it, you don't know whether it's right or wrong anyway. And so that's exactly what Paul does because as I often say, truth never fears a challenge. Truth has no problem with scrutiny. Truth has no problem being tried. In fact, the opposite. We're going to see how far Paul went out of his way to prove that his message was true. And it's only after he establishes that his message is true, then he begins to poke holes in the message of the Judaizers. And so that's what we need to always remember. You know, don't be so quick. Yes, we need to expose lies and flaws. Uh, but if we can't defend the truth of what we believe, we, we really need to reevaluate some things. That's, what, that's really what Paul is doing here in this text. And so uh, the question I want to deal with this morning is what, is, what are the, some of the tests of the true gospel? Not a true gospel, but the true gospel. And certainly these are not the only tests, but I'm just pulling the tests that I, I see here in the text out and dealing with them. And, and some of this is going to overlap with what we taught last week, but there's still going to be a different angle that I want you to see on this, especially point one. But number one, when we're talking about testing the gospel, the first test that goes along with last week, number one, does it line up? Does that gospel line up with what the apostles taught? I'm talking about the apostles in the Scripture. Salvation by grace through faith. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And when I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. 
Now, this is very important to understand and kind of get the context where Paul is coming from. But when he talks about going up to Jerusalem to speak to the apostles and the elders of the church at Jerusalem, he's referring back to a specific incident that you can find in Acts chapter 15. We're not going to go there for the sake of time, but I'll refer back to it frequently. But it would be good to go read in your own time. Acts chapter 15 is, is what he's referring to. And the specific event is known as the Jerusalem Council. And the incident in Galatians, this is what I want you to understand. This incident in Galatians was not the first time that a works gospel uh, was preached or taught or had reared its ugly head. It, it showed up before. Um, and we see that in Acts 15. And for perspective, Paul received direct revelation from Christ. We see this in Acts chapter 9 when he was just gloriously converted. Paul or, or Saul, they're both the same man. Uh, he was on his way to Damascus with legal right to persecute, imprison, or kill Christians at Damascus. The Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself from heaven, blinds him with a light, knocks him off his horse, and speaks to him and saves him right there on the road to Damascus and totally changed Paul's life. But what's interesting is after his conversion, instead of directly approaching the apostles with this news, he went to the desert for three years in Arabia. We find this uh, mentioned, Paul mentioned at the end of Galatians chapter 1 there. He's kind of given his testimony. And so we don't know exactly what happened in that desert. It would seem that the Lord Jesus Christ may have trained him somehow. We don't know whether he used other men, whether he spoke to him directly. Paul was a unique character. There was no, there's only one Paul. And so we can't use that as prescriptive for us, but it was certainly something that happened for him. And so he was in the Arabian desert for three years, and then he began to preach to the Gentiles. He went on his first missionary journey. Uh, for a period of about 14 years, all this transpired. Uh, he saw many Gentiles saved during that first missionary journey. But what's really interesting to me is that during that entire time, the whole, when you combine his training and his first journey was about 17 years, give or take. During that entire 17-year period, he never even met any of the apostles except for Peter just for a brief time. That's it. And so he's doing all these things, and he never really uh, conferred with him. And I'm sure that the Judaizers used this to their advantage. They said, he's not an apostle. He's never even been with the apostles. But if there had been a problem with anything that Paul was doing, then certainly Peter would have called him out in that short encounter uh, that they had. And so um, when this false teaching about circumcision and the keeping of the law came up, Paul made a special trip to Jerusalem for the sole purpose of meeting up with Peter, James, and John, as well as the elders at the church of Jerusalem for the purpose, now listen to this, for the purpose of confirming that the gospel that he preached was the true gospel. Now listen, Paul was not doubting the gospel he was preaching. Don't misunderstand this. He was not hearing what these Judaizers were saying going, you know what? I may not be right about this. I need to go check with the apostles. That's not what he was doing. He was not doing it to confirm it within his heart. He was doing it to confirm it to everyone else that he would tell. And by the way, it's very powerful evidence <laughs> to be able to tell the Judaizers and the Galatian believers and said, yeah, uh, I talked to the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem about that, and they said, you're full of baloney. 
Peter, James, and John all believe and preach and teach the gospel of grace. The elders at Jerusalem, they preach the gospel of grace, and they have a whole lot more authority than you do. You're the ones in the wrong. That's a very powerful uh, way of saying it, very powerful evidence. That, that's why he did it. He went all the way to Jerusalem just to prove the point uh, about the gospel of grace. Um, at that Jerusalem council, by the way, if you go back and read Acts 15 sometime, when they were dealing with this same lie with these Pharisees and the Judaizers, uh, it, was a different situa- it was a different group of people than these teachers at Galatia, but they were teaching the same thing. And at the Jerusalem council... Peter preached that there was no difference between Jews and Gentiles and that everyone is saved only by grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, as I mentioned last week, the apostles are still our authority today. I'm talking about what they wrote. Not apostles today, but what the apostles... Isn't it amazing? Even the apostle Paul sought out the authority of the other apostles to confirm the gospel. We have to do the same thing today. Obviously, we can't go to them directly. They're dead, but we can go what they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if what's being preached and taught today does not match up with what they taught, whoever's teaching is a liar, liar, pants on fire. That's right. And so that, that's the standard. That's how we try the spirits. That's how we test the gospel by the standard of the Word of God. Now, let me, I just want to appeal to your, I want to pick your brain for a minute. Why on earth would anybody believe a vision, a church, a book, or a teacher or preacher that teaches something totally different than what the apostles and Christ himself taught in the early church concerning salvation? Why would anybody do that? What gives anybody the authority to say, I know what Christ and the apostles said, but here's what's really true. You know, that's, that's kind of out of date. God's given me a new revelation. He's given me a new word. Let me ask you a question. Is God a schizophrenic? Does he change his mind? Has has God found something better than the gospel in Christ to save a lost and dying world? Just remember that when it comes to truth, if it's new, it ain't true. And if it's true, it ain't new. And if somebody is teaching something that's never been taught in Scripture or 2,000 years of church history, they're out of their mind. You know what they're saying? They're saying, you can throw this Bible in the garbage. You can forget about what Paul and Jesus and Peter and John, you forget about what all those guys taught. Forget about everything that's ever been taught in 2,000 years of church history and listen to me. I am the authority now. I would hate to stand before God and be one of those false teachers. So just remember that. That's how we test these things. Here were these new teachers, even in the context of what we're reading today. Here were these new teachers teaching something completely contrary to the apostles' doctrine and the gospel of grace. They're still doing the same thing today. The devil has no new lies, just new people to fool with the old ones. Sometimes he repackages certain things, but inside the box it's the same thing. And that is a works-based salvation. If what, somebody teach, if what somebody teaches goes against the apostles of Scripture, they are lying. I don't care how nice they are. I don't care how beautiful their church buildings or their temples are. I don't care how much money they have. 
I don't care how big their following is, if they teach things that go contrary to this book, they are a liar. Straight out of hell. And by the way, Corinthians tells us that Satan has ministers. Did you know that? Satan has ministers, and they appear as an angel of light. In other words, they look, the way they look, the way they talk, man, they're just smooth as butter, but they're liars. You know, the devil's too smart to look like a devil. You realize that, right? And so, man, he'll, you know, every cult every, you know, has teachings that are a little bit of truth with a lot of error. And that's the way it always is. Satan doesn't have a problem with a little bit of truth. He just has a problem with enough truth to get somebody saved. So in order to test the true gospel, uh, number one, we have to ask the question, does it align with what the apostles taught? If it doesn't, it's false. Number two, how do we test the true gospel? Number two, does it place any barriers between a sinner and Christ? Look at verse 3. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with, with you. Now, to further prove his argument... Paul brings up Titus, who is a Gentile convert, and Titus was also brought to this Jerusalem council. Now, what Paul says is, uh, Titus was uncircumcised when we came, and he was uncircumcised when we left the Jerusalem council. And Paul's point was, if he had to be circumcised in order to be saved and make it to heaven, then why would they let him leave that way? Why would he leave that? If his very eternal soul is at stake by this symbol of the Old Testament covenant, then why wouldn't he have done something about it? Now think about that. That's, the, that's a very scary thought here, folks. If you even have a thought of a thought that by you not doing something or doing something, that that something would send you to hell for all eternity, you want to do something about it, wouldn't you? If there was any doubt. But Paul's point was there is no doubt. Titus was saved by grace through faith, and that act, that procedure was going to add nothing to that. Titus could go home and lay down on his bed at night and know that he was saved because of what Christ did. But even in our lives, there are things that I feel like people have, um, I call it the just-in-case mentality. Just-in-case and we might even have people sitting on a pew in this church today that maybe even subconsciously from time to time practice the just-in-case mentality. You say, well, Brother Brandon, what is the just-in-case mentality? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's when, you know, maybe factually, maybe, listen, I believe that somebody can have a just-in-case mentality and, and actually be saved. Although I feel like there's a lot that probably are not. But what I mean when I say that is they might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He was virgin born, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for sin, rose from the dead on the throne. They might believe all those things, but they really truly don't trust in it. They don't, they don't rest in Christ. 
And they might say, you know, yes, I, you know, I, I repented of my sin and I asked the Lord to forgive me and I, I've trusted Christ. And all that. But, but just in case, just in case that's not enough to get me to heaven, just in case that's not enough to make me right with God, I need to do other things. Maybe I need to give money to the church or maybe I need to be baptized or maybe I need to you know, make sure I'm in church all the time, or maybe I need to do some work at the church or do some good works. And by the way, all of those things are good things. Please don't misunderstand me. We need to give to the Lord. We need to be... He's commanded us to be baptized as a public symbol of following Christ. We need to be faithful to a local body of believers. We need to do good works. We need to tell others about Christ. All those things are good, but they're wrong if you do them with a just-in-case mentality. If you, listen, if you have a just-in-case mentality, you have never rested or enjoyed Christ a day in your life because you're still living with a mentality of, yeah, I know all this is right, but it may not be enough. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I mean, being honest with you, do you know beyond any shadow of a doubt, or as the old-timers used to say, do you know that you know that you know that you're saved? I mean, if your heart stopped beating even as you sit here this morning, do you know for sure that you would be in heaven? Do you know Jesus Christ? Does that relationship bear any fruit in your life? Are you really saved? I'm not trying to doubt cast. I'm not trying to, to, to scare you unnecessarily, but we're commanded to examine ourselves. And so my question is, are you saved, first of all? And if you are saved, are you resting in that salvation? Or do you have that just-in-case mentality? See, that's how the cults get people with that just-in-case stuff. The believers at Galatia, they would have told you all the facts about the gospel. They, they would have got that, but then they're doing all these other things just in case. Nobody, you, you can't rest like that. Um, we have to rest in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Um, as Peter preached at the Jerusalem Council, I put on a burden on the Gentiles that even the Jews couldn't bear. But they had so much faith and trust in the gospel of grace that they didn't have to do this. No circumcision, no fulfilling law, don't worry about that. They didn't have a just-in-case mentality. They just trusted the gospel. Now, um, when we talk about doing good works and doing good things, yes, we need to. That's honorable, but it's all about the motive. We ought to do those things because Christ is enough and He is worthy. And from our freedom in Christ, our joy and salvation and assurance of heaven, that's why we go to church, because He's worthy. I go to church because He's worthy. I set aside a day of the week to come worship Him because He's worthy. He's worthy to be faithful to His house. He's worthy to sing His praises. He's worthy to preach His word. That's why I come. I'm not trying to appease anybody. I'm not trying to check off some, just something to do on my list that week. I, I love it what one man said. There's an elderly man who had been faithful to church all his life, and as he got older, uh, the, the natural things of life began to happen. His wife died, and he actually outlived his children, and he lived alone, and his health started failing him, and it was really a struggle for him to get to church. And yet he came every single time the doors were open and people just look at him and think, you know, I'm so glad he's here, but I mean, he may just need to stay home. You know, it's just such a, so hard for him to get here. 
Plus, he's already had a life of service. He doesn't have to prove anything. And somebody asked him one day, they said, you know, you've done enough. Like, nobody would think bad of you if you stayed home. Why, why are you still coming? He said, I just want people to know whose side I'm on. <laughs> I like that. I still want, you know, he couldn't do anything but come and sit there. Couldn't do anything like what he used to. He just wanted folks to know whose side he's still on. I like that. And that's why we do it. He's worthy. We hand out tracts because he's worthy. We tell people about Christ because he's worthy. We give to him because he's worthy. That's giving of our time, giving of our finances. We don't do it out of a feeling of guilt or obligation. That's how the cults get people. Listen, there's cults meeting this morning. They're giving money. But they're doing it because they've been browbeat about doing it. We ought to do it because He's worthy and He's alive and He's reigning and ruling next to the right hand of the Father. He's worthy. What's your motive this morning? You know, we can do the same exact things and do it for totally different reasons. God cares about the motive. He cares about the heart and the reason. He, He knows why people go to church. He knows why people do good things. He knows the motive. And so when it comes to the true gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith in Lord Jesus Christ with no other stipulations added. False gospels always add works to Christ. And they add burdens to people that should just have liberty in Christ. And before I move on to my last point, since we do live here in the epicenter of Mormon country, I thought it would be pertinent to point this out this morning. But here is just a, a brief synopsis out of their own material of what the Mormons teach about salvation. Listen to this, and I quote, Part of the work of salvation, part, part of the work of salvation has been done by the atonement of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus didn't get it done on the cross. He just just did part of it, and the rest is up to you. And so when you make it to heaven, be sure to give God a high five and say, yes, we did it. Part of, I I would be afraid to even teach that to somebody. Part of the work of salvation has been done by the atonement of Jesus Christ and that all human beings are guaranteed resurrection, but to attain the full quality of eternal life, human beings also have to do the work. We believe that people arrive in this world without sin, but that they soon misbehave and need to be saved from the consequence of their own actions. That's, all that's false too, but I don't get into that. Uh, there is a thing called original sin. It's one of the clearest teachings in all the Bible. It says, to live close to God, a person must have dealt with all the sins in their life. People have a choice of what sins they commit. And they have a free choice of what to do and put things right. For a Mormon to achieve salvation, they must do the following. Believe in Jesus Christ. Hey, we could stop right there. Let's go to the house. But they didn't leave it there. Just like the Judaizers. Number two, you must be baptized into the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not just baptized, but baptized into their church and under their authority. Number three, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost through the laying on of hands by a person with priesthood authority. Well, who has priesthood authority according to them? Not us. I'm not preaching by any kind of God-ordained authority this morning. Only they have the priesthood authority. And so, uh, man, that's, that's just so satanic. Um, By our priesthood authority, you know what they're doing? They're robbing from Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest. And as I've said before, 
they're saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but we're the only way to Jesus. They literally create a job for themselves. They're saying without us, you can't make it. And every Mormon that I've ever talked to, without exception, they'll say, we believe the same thing you do. We believe in Jesus Christ, and you have to be saved by faith and the atonement and all that. And then I ask them this one question. I said, so you're telling me that I can make it to the top level of heaven where God is without the Mormon church? Crickets. Because the answer is no. We can't do it without them. You see that? They're creating job security for themselves because they take away from Jesus Christ, who's our only great high priest, and they say, we're the priest, and we are the go-between between you and Jesus. God help that person when they stand before the great high priest, uh, the priesthood authority. And, and look, it goes so much deeper, and I'm not going to get into all this, um, but I, I will mention this. I just got through with a book um, called Passport to Heaven, a young man named Michael Wilder. He was a very dedicated Mormon missionary. And he got sent to Florida on his mission. And it was there he encountered a Baptist pastor who really God just used him to change his life, end up getting saved. And he had to go. He actually, before he left his mission, was preaching the true gospel to people. And, of course, they can't have that. Mormons can't have people telling folks that Jesus is the only way to heaven. So he had to go before the president. President Sorensen is who it was. He had to go before President Sorensen. And he, he basically was excommunicated from the Mormon church, all for professing salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the way that Wilder described it, I would have not thought about this. The way Wilder described it is when, they, when that president handed him his excommunication papers, it was essentially handing his own soul to him. Because by doing that, he's losing eternal life. Because according to the Mormons, you go to outer darkness. If you are raised a Mormon and you leave the Mormon church, you're going to outer darkness. Isn't that that crazy? Isn't that how that works? No intimidation here, folks. No fear-mongering. No manipulation and control. Nothing to see here. But you see that... I mean, who? what, what arrogance would it take to hand somebody a piece of paper and act like he was handing the damnation of their own soul to them. Who in the world thinks they have that kind of authority? Only God does. You also, to be saved as a Mormon, you must partake of the ordinances, endure the test of their life on earth, follow the teachings of Christ the apostles. They don't believe that. Keep God's commandments. Well, if we could do that, why did Christ come to die for us? Repent of their sin undo any wrongs that they may commit, treat other people the way that they would want to be treated. Has anybody in this room ever completed everything on that list? Has anybody completed everything on that list since you've been saved? Nobody. So we can't make it to heaven. To reach the highest level of glory, I'm reading from this still, to reach the highest level of glory, a person must also have been sealed in an eternal marriage in the Mormon temple. Now, I'll say this about the Mormon gospel, and I'll go into my last point, we'll be done. This will help you when you're witnessing to Mormons, because um, in my time here in witnessing to Mormons, the number one sticking point that I've really found some success with is this. But I get them to explain their gospel to me. I want to hear it. Tell me about it. And they always, it's always the same thing, believe Jesus, be back. What I just read, same thing. And then I, I listen to them, and I'm honestly listening 
And after they're done, I'll ask them this question. I'll say, so based on your beliefs, on your faith, if you died right now, are you 100% sure that you would be in the presence of God in the top level of heaven? And without exception, they, either, they, they say, no, I couldn't know that. I don't know. And I say, well, let me ask you this. Can you ever get to the place where you could know? And they say, no, I couldn't know that. And then I ask them, well, how is that good news? You're sitting here telling me about something so adamantly. And at the end of the day, you get to that place. And if I believe what you believe, then I won't know where I stand with God. And somehow that's good news. What a miserable existence. Going to bed every night wondering if you said something or didn't say something or, or did something or didn't do something that uh, knocked you out of the top rung of heaven where God is. That's miserable, folks. That's control. That is the exact bondage that Paul says, do not be entangled with the yoke of bondage. That's exactly what that is. Because we have liberty and freedom in Jesus Christ. I, I think about what Joseph Smith said in 2 Nephi. 25 and verse 23, he says, For by grace are you saved after all that you can do. Grace becomes God's reward for doing good, good enough, well enough. And I always, I quote that to the Mormons, and I ask them, I say, well, what is good enough? Have you really done all that you can do? Nobody's done all that we can do. So what, what a horrible existence. What a, what a horrible gospel. It's a message of control. Paul said to these false teachers that we didn't listen to them for one hour. We didn't give them one ounce of respect because the gospel of grace is the only thing that saves us. And we should do the same. We shouldn't, we shouldn't even entertain that stuff. Uh, but then number three, we're talking about testing the gospel. Not only do we have to see if the gospel lines up with the apostles taught, not only do we have to check to see if there's any barriers placed between the sinner and Christ, but lastly, uh, we need to ask, does the gospel message preached leave a person unchanged. Verse 6. But of these who seem to be somewhat, talking about a reputation, whatever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepted no man's persons. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, uh, for that he wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Now I want to pause right there. There have been some that took that phrase out of context and have tried to say that there's different gospels to different people. That is not what this is saying. It's the same gospel to d different groups of people. God called Paul to preach to the Gentiles. God called Peter specifically to deal with the Jews. Same gospel, different groups of people. That's a really simple concept. But um, look in verse 9. It says that when James, Cephas, Cephas is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go into the heathen, and they come into the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to. And so here, not only at this Jerusalem council, which is what Paul's been referring to, not only did they gather to talk about doctrinal matters and make sure they had the gospel right, but another purpose for meeting was to see what they could do about helping the poor. You see, the gospel is not just something that leaves us unchanged. 
It's not something where we just pray a prayer and go about our life and live like we want to. And we, yes, we've got our ticket punched to heaven. Uh, The gospel is a lifestyle. It really changes the hearts of dead sinners. And it, it, it makes us, it creates us to do good works. Um, in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we usually stop there. We love verses 8 and 9. But then it goes on in verse 10 uh, to say that we were created in Christ Jesus unto good works, but he hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we weren't created in Christ Jesus to sit. We were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. If, if Christ saves us, if he changes our heart, if he saves our soul, if he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell us, he's not going to leave us the same way that he found us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if any man, or you could easily say any woman, anyone, if anyone be in Christ, they're a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. The gospel of grace changes hearts. It frees us from the penalty and power of our sin. And it gives the person a grateful heart of love and service to Christ. And, and I'll close on this thought, and we'll definitely come back to this as we make our way through the book. But when it talks about our liberty in Christ, what is it really talking about? Is it liberty to do whatever we want to do? Jesus paid for our sin, let's get our money's worth. It's talking about the freedom and liberty to serve Jesus Christ. Because before we were saved, when we were still lost and undone, when we were a slave to our sinful nature, a slave to the world, the flesh, and the devil, we didn't have the liberty to serve Jesus Christ. But now we do. We have the the power, we have the liberty. We have the freedom to do those things, but false gospels and cults put us right back in that place as if we have no victory over sin. And so we need to ask the question, does the gospel message leave a person unchanged? You know, there are gospels out there, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. There are gospels out there that may have the bare-bone facts of the gospel correct, but it's still a false gospel in the way they present it. You know, just say this prayer here. Just, just say this prayer. You know, don't listen to anybody that says you have to have any kind of repentance or fruit or have any kind of works. Just, just say this prayer. We're good. We'll, we'll dunk you. We'll, we'll put your name on the church roll until everybody got saved. And even if we never see you again, we, we'll see you in the kingdom. That's about a false gospel as a pig is to a sow. Cost something to be a Christian. Yes, it's free. Jesus paid it all. But friend... Discipleship's a real thing. Picking up your cross and following Him is a real thing. You don't get Him as Lord. You don't get Him as Savior. Period. Are you going to be perfect? No. Do you have to get things right to a point where then you can get saved? No. God takes care of all that. Repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ is a synonymous thing. But there's no saving faith without repentance, and there's no repentance without saving faith. So my question is, as we close this morning, do you have liberty in Christ? Are you truly saved? Do you enjoy being saved? I'm not saying that you're always going to be, you know, always be on cloud nine. I don't live there either. I struggle. I have problems. 
I wrestle with God. There's no doubt about that. But I know that I'm saved. And for all the things that I don't know, I know that I'm saved. I know that. That gives you an awful lot of confidence in such an unsure world, doesn't it? I mean, really, hey, the worst they can do is kill me. Appreciate it. You're not doing nothing but sending me home. Do you have liberty in Christ? Are you saved? Or have you believed and trusted in a false gospel? Would you stand this morning? She comes. Heavenly